Don't forget to subscribe to our new podcast. I look for us every day on cbc.com slash podcast on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Do you have a preference? Which one should I do to watch one of our or hear one well, of our? Well, I do it on the Apple because I'm All right, I Apple should phone, do that. IPhone. I'll try. Can you show it's me actually, how? It's actually really good. I it listen is? to it. It's well edited. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's essential morning show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today, Zuckerberg v. Warren. Leaked audio of the Facebook leader thrusts him into the presidential campaign. Mark Zuckerberg runs an entire social network that's about being transparent, and he's actually the most opaque CEO in the entire industry. Good news or bad news? Online brokerages race to zero fees, but what's good for customers might be scary for the industry, at least at first. It means revenues this decade should grow the slowest in 80 years, eight zero years. And talking to Adidas's CEO on the steps and missteps of making recycled shoes. When then, by the way, the first stuff wasn't all that great. Did you ever regret making this move and think, what have I gotten ourselves into? We've got those stories and more. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's Wednesday, October 2nd, 2019. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Mike Santoli. Andrew's out today. It was a rough start to October for the bulls, the Dow and the S&P posting their worst day in at least five weeks. The major averages dropping more than a percent each. In fact, the Dow and the S&P managed to give back all of their gains from the third quarter in one session yesterday. Yesterday, we got that ISM number and it did show a big decline. Biggest drop that we've seen since 2009, but that's really just showing that there's been a real freeze that's hit the manufacturing economy. Not that we're back to levels of 2009. That's right. But you have seen a big turndown in right. activity. It's the, it's the lowest ISM index reading, which means that um, essentially it's the uh, fewest respondents to the manufacturing survey saying things are better than they were last month. So this is a kind of a, of a this month versus last month kind of a, a survey. Uh, so it's below what we saw in early 2016. What's interesting is sometimes the market moves are, you know, kind of inscrutable. You can't figure out what's going on. Yesterday, market was up 10 a.m. This number hit. Bond yields collapsed. And the stock market started to sell off, and it continued through the, through the close. So clearly it just challenged this idea that the U.S. economy was resilient enough uh, to, to kind of work its way through this process. It doesn't help when, when we were constantly talking about increasing recession fears that we don't really know what to tie to. And then exactly. suddenly this data point comes along, and it's like, oh, maybe so that's, that's what it is. Um, <laughs> but the consumer is, in this economy, in 2000, what year is it, 2009? 2019. In 2019, are we dependent on manufacturing no. to the extent that we used to be? Or, not or, even close. Not I even think, close. I think it's, it is the bigger swing factor. I mean, the great thing about the consumer right. economy is, it doesn't go down that much, but it also isn't the thing that accelerates that much to, to, to pull the whole economy It also matters ahead. for swing states in those swing economies because yep. manufacturing has yep. been a big part of why you saw them voting for President Trump. You wonder what happens next time around. Mark Zuckerberg finding himself in the middle of another controversy, this time with candidate Elizabeth Warren. The verb... Here's how Facebook's story unfolded yesterday. The Verge obtained more than two hours of leaked audio from internal Facebook meetings, in which Mark Zuckerberg vowed to fend off Warren's plan to break up the tech giant. Like Elizabeth Warren, who thinks that the right answer is to break up the companies, um, you know, I mean, if she gets elected president, then I would, I would bet that we will have a legal challenge, and I would bet that we will win the legal challenge. So it's, so it's, um, so basically, it's, uh, it, and, um, 
so I, I, does that still suck for us? Yeah, I mean, I don't have to, you know, have a major lawsuit against our own government. I mean, that's not like the position that you want to be in when you're, you know. I mean, it's like we we care about our country and like want to work with our government to do good things. And um, but but look, at the end of the day, if someone's going to try to threaten something that existential, you go to the mat and you fight. Warren then fired back tweeting, what would really suck is if we don't fix a corrupt system that lets giant companies like Facebook engage in illegal anti-competitive practices, stomp on consumer privacy rights, and repeatedly fumble their responsibility to protect our democracy. Our production assistant, Anjali Sundaram, caught up with The Verge's editor-in-chief in the Squawk Box green room. If you want to introduce yourself. I'm Neil Patel. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Verge. I am standing at the NASDAQ, uh, very close to the set. Why are you joining us today? Uh, last night, The Verge published a big scoop by our great reporter, Casey Newton, uh, featuring two hours of leaked audio of Mark Zuckerberg addressing Facebook employees at internal meetings. And Zuckerberg discussed everything from uh, the sort of rocky rollout of their cryptocurrency Libra to Elizabeth Warren's breakup plans being an existential threat to Facebook. Neelay Patel and New York Times reporter Ed Lee joined Squawk Box to discuss Zuckerberg v. Warren. Guys, I have to say, I read through everything that we've seen him reporting on this, and I thought, fantastic, way to go, Mark Zuckerberg. He was speaking candidly, answering questions that his employees posed to him. You know, Elizabeth Warren picked up and jumped on this, but as far as I was concerned, it was like, good, speak out, be, be forthright. What did you think, Neelai? Yeah, so, you know, our reporter, Casey Newton, uh, has been on the Facebook beat for over a year. He writes a newsletter about it every single day called The Interface. Uh, so, you know, we got the audio from a source that he's been working on. Uh, other sources in the company corroborated it. Uh, and what I thought was Mark Zuckerberg runs an entire social network that's about being transparent, and he's actually the most opaque CEO in the entire industry. Until this conversation. Until this. This is the most transparent we've ever heard him be. He probably should have an opinion about Elizabeth Warren wanting to break up Facebook. I think that does raise some important questions about their role in the upcoming election if she ends up being the candidate. Can he be neutral running a media distribution service of of that size if one of the candidates wants to break up his company and calls it This is so much fun. You just don't know uh, for some of us. Uh, When you started reading that first thing, you said there's a crack developing. I thought you we're going to say between Silicon Valley and the Democratic Party. That's really what I thought. But for someone no, there, who's... There are for, a lot of people in Silicon Valley who like this because they're the smaller competitors. I, they've been I, love, watch, I love watching you. I, I, so you what like does this the, mean? You, like you mean Google and Facebook but, aren't going to absolutely try to elect <laughs> a Democrat this time around? They're not going to do it this time? Or what about you at the New York Times? Oh, yeah, 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 we have our we have our own little pack going on. Yeah, sure, exactly. Come on. No, that's not what we're thinking either. He's so woke. And all of a sudden, he's like in the real world. He's like... Wow. Is he that maybe, maybe he's exactly. so every, every, every time a Republican criticizes Facebook, Zuckerberg starts saying, no, we're not that bad. We're, we're fine. We're doing it. Elizabeth Warren says, hey, I think your company is a threat to democracy. I think you're too big. I think there's some competition Great. in this market. And he says, I'm going to go to the mat and fight you. Like, the actual words and actions when he's criticized by one side versus the other are very different. It's just nice. It, 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 when he, he comes into the real world, the he sees what... You don't think Josh Hawley wants to break up Facebook? Look, I think that there are other Republicans who might want to do it. Are there Republicans running for president who want to break up Facebook? Yeah, I think Josh Hawley is going to run for president. You think he's going to win? Well, I mean, I, think, I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know what he's going to win, but I know what his ambitions are. Being woke is great in principle until, you know, you actually see what some but of the there, effects would be there is of being a lot of, There is a lot of bipartisan sentiment in Washington to take on Facebook, not just for Facebook, different but reasons, the other. For That's different why, reasons, uh, th- th- for, But they're such an easy target. And I think there's a, something a little bit disingenuous in what 
uh, what Zuckerberg's talking about in these in this town hall in particular, which is people are concerned that you know they think that we're so big and powerful. Well, they are so big and powerful. <laughs> that is a big part of the reason why. That's why they're such a target of disinformation campaigns. They're they've got the most reach for one thing. So I think he does recognize that, but I think that's. He's sort of underestimating the concern from whether it's Elizabeth Warren or Hawley or others on, on the left or the right, why they need to go after it. I, I agree with Neelai. I think it's, you know, it's really, really interesting that a company that prides itself on being transparent and being open and here's, you know, we want to connect people. But like, here's the thing. Like he's opening up. He's possible. talking to 3,000 employees. He's not thinking that this is a closed room conversation and he's getting attacked for what he says in that. He knew, don't you think? Well, is I mean, this is not like think, a group of five people having a conversation in a quiet room. Oh, but is it wrong to think that this particular story works for everybody on every side? Right. right. Zuckerberg standing up for his company. We're not going to let them break us up. Warren gets a foil, can kind of criticize. You know, the, the Republicans can still criticize whatever. So it's and, almost and like will, everyone's the got their place and they collect more money and nothing really happens to the business yet. Well, so let me, let me, let me try to come at it a different way. I don't think anybody is happy with Facebook on the right or the left. Right? I don't, I don't either. Like, I, I think it, they're it, a big punching bag right now. It, and, and by the way, this is great news for all the smaller companies who are saying, finally, our day. They're the ones who are now saying, okay, we're going to donate more to this because we've been squished for so long and dealt with this big competitor that we can't fight against and who thwarts everything we ever try to do. They're thrilled with this, too. So Silicon Valley is no longer one monolithic voice in terms of what they want to see happen. I think a lot of small companies, their entire investment strategy has been based on an exit on hoping to that they'll buy. Amazon or Google or Facebook. But I don't had, know if that's we had, great. We had Alexis Ohanian on yesterday, yeah. and he just talked about how, look, he's thrilled to see that smaller guys that he invests in will maybe have a better chance. He's not yeah. rooting for this, but he's thrilled to see that it could be a change in how things happen. I, I, don't, I don't know that Silicon Valley is going to speak with one monolithic voice on this. I, I just think if you look at how Facebook is positioning itself, what they're saying is, come on, come on, regulate us. We're inevitable. We're the big ones. We're right, the national I agree. champion. I agree with we that. are now infrastructure of this company. Why don't you just go ahead and regulate us, cement our position as the monopoly on social networking, digital advertising, all the rest. I agree with that. I don't know if that's great. And I think it's interesting that you look at sort of the Holly proposal. We're going to ban auto-scroll and auto-play videos, right. right? We're going to actually change the behavior of the apps at the feature level. That is a very tight amount of regulation for a Republican, whereas Warren's saying, hey, maybe you should be two different companies. Guys, we have to continue this conversation another time. Love to have you both back to do it. Cheese will be next. Up next on Squawk Pod, Wall Street goes man versus machine, and the machine is winning? Great news if you're an investor, maybe not so much if you're a broker. Back after this. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. One of the big Wall Street stories this week is about online brokerages. It's a little in the weeds, so we'll walk you through it. When trading stocks, you pay a commission or fee to the broker or e-brokerage who completes the trade on your behalf. You might have heard of a Silicon Valley startup called Robinhood. It made headlines in 2013 when it offered commission-free trading. And that, it turns out, was only the beginning. In an effort to retain their customers, various companies followed Robinhood's lead. J.P. Morgan Chase unveiled its own free trading app in August, and last week, Interactive Brokers announced it would launch a similar service. Then, yesterday, Charles Schwab announced that it, too, would be eliminating fees for stock, ETF, and options trades. This morning, TD Ameritrade followed suit. But here's the rub. The commissions contribute to the revenue of the online brokerages who collect them. TD Ameritrade, for example, gets 36% of its total revenues from broker fees. The others aren't as dramatic, but it was enough to send those companies' stocks down when they released their plans. So if revenues are shrinking, the big banks need to cut costs elsewhere. Here's what you need to know from Mike Mayo, senior banking analyst at Wells Fargo. This is Mike Santoli kicking off the conversation. 
Morning, Mike. Good to have you here. In terms of this, you know, race to zero on uh, retail brokerage commissions, um, does it have an effect uh, on the larger institutions or just reflective of how essentially it's tougher to charge for the stuff you used to charge for? Well, as a colleague at my firm said, there's no way to sugarcoat the impact of zero commissions on the e-brokers. Having said that, when you look at the banking space, it's not material and it's not the way banks are doing business. That's kind of a, a 20th century business model. The 21st century business model for all of the large banks is to have a relationship, have a financial plan, have products, and charge fees. So it's not a material impact on the banks, but it does highlight the declining revenue growth in the financial industry as a whole. You're reducing the frictional costs of finance, and that's a good thing for consumers. But what it means for the banking industry, it means revenues this decade should grow the slowest in 80 years, eight zero years. So if you're having slower revenue growth, what do you need to do? You need to control expenses, and the way you do that is with technology. So we're about to enter the golden age of banking and technology. You're going to see technology applied at banks like you've never seen it done before. Oh, and by the way, banks have no choice. Banks are spending $150 billion a year on technology. So they better get... So they're already in there uh, trying to transform them. But they better, get, they better get the results. The last 25 years it has not really worked. Yeah. Scale has not been better. Scale now is better at the biggest banks. You're now seeing that Goliath is winning. And when you look ahead, I mean, right now you see the biggest decline in branches in history, the biggest decline in employees in history. Looking ahead this decade, we think there will be a reduction of 200,000 jobs in the banking industry. And the reason is, when you look at it, we, and we worked six months on this project. We dealt with nine senior tech analysts at Wells Fargo Securities in the research department. So we, we went to the Brain Trust, and we dug deep. And you said, how much are you going to save in technology, in data centers, in telecom, and software? You know where the biggest savings are due to tech? Yeah. Non-tech, employees. Employee costs are half of bank expenses, so the main lever that banks have is to control costs, and you can do that with technology. Is it only a cost thing, though? Because if you look at the valuations of a PayPal, Square, Stripe, um, talk about all the kind of non-bank lending that goes on, it seems like the market's suggesting that they've kind of been kind of sidelined, the big banks. Is that true, and, and how can tech fix that? Well, wait a minute. I mean, the banks are not sidelined. Take a look at Bank America. Bank America's retention of their preferred customers is 99%. Retention of customers in the banking industry is at the lowest level since at least the early part of last decade. What you're seeing now, and here's a concept, and this is different than those online brokers that you're talking about, like the idea of I'm going to go to this financial institution because they charge me the the lowest rate on one trade. No, we're talking about you know, lifetime customers, customers for life. And the way the largest banks can do that is because you get them young, you have digital banking relationships, you have branches, you have advice, and you're seeing that in the numbers today. So you might not see it in the top line in absolute terms, but you're seeing it because you retain those customers. And that's why even without much revenue growth, you still can see returns go higher due to improving efficiency that's enabled by technology. This is fantastic. I mean, it's not easy. This is the biggest capital for labor swap in the history of U.S. banking. Yeah. So all those, you've been around. Yeah. Remember a couple of decades ago, 
late 90s, the tech bubble, and that was going to transform banking. It didn't in the ways that everybody expected. Efficiency did not improve because of bureaucracy, but now technology is helping to serve customers and banks run their operations. From an investor's perspective, what's the takeaway? Is it simply that, look, I see Pfizer, for example, stock go up almost every day, and that's a seller of technology services to financial institutions. But in terms of the banks themselves, it's just say, you know, take comfort in the fact that margins are going to get better and they're going to forge digital relationships with customers. How does it work for an investor? At this well, this, this is the time to buy bank stocks. Century to date, bank stocks have underperformed by 70 percentage points. And by the way, they underperformed more this decade than last decade during the financial crisis. But now, looking ahead, banks should have record efficiency, the best pre-tax margin in 50 years, the highest returns since pre-crisis, and that's driven by efficiency. Meanwhile, banks are trading as if it's like going to be a recession tomorrow. So if there's a recession, you're pretty much pricing that in. Meanwhile, you have this powerful structural change taking place with technology and banks. So if you're a bank investor, you also have to at least be you know, a, a tech investor. If you're a bank analyst, you also have to be, you know, a tech analyst, which I'm calling myself now a, a, okay. a, a, a tech you're analyst. officially anointing yourself a tech I, analyst. I, yeah, I, there you go. But you don't, I wouldn't become like a steel analyst, I don't think, or I'm not sure about a bank analyst, really. You should switch. Well, I'm still a bank analyst, but I, and by the way, I'm, since you're here, Joe, I'm going to induct myself into the world of technology analysts. Are you ready for my induction ceremony? Actually, that tie is no great loss. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so we're going to go ahead and uh, Will cut Will you help him do that? I, I am Mike. now, I'm now I leaving the world. Don't cut the microphone like wires. Okay, Mike Mayo that, feels so strongly about tech's infiltration in the banking sector that he theatrically cut off his tie as a ceremonial shift from covering banks to covering technology and banks. We will get this done. Mike, you got to help. Literally, he cut off his tie. Goodbye to solely bank analyst. I am now a part-time tech analyst. I am joining the ranks of All the right. Silicon Valley I, because if you are a banker, you must be at least a part-time technology right, manager. Those shoes are too good. You got to get Okay. Well, 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 I'll, you I'll, pick I'll that tie because you didn't want it? Yeah, I asked my wife, what's the ugliest tie in my closet? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she picked this. She one. did. Yeah. There you go. Okay. All right. Mike, thanks a lot. Thanks Congratulations on your induction. There you go. Next on Squawk Pod, Adidas wants you to run around in old shoes, or actually, shoes made from old stuff. The CEO of the German athletic company on saving the world's oceans from garbage, three stripes at a time. Last week, and I was mountain biking in the Austrian mountains with a fully outfit made out of ocean plastic. Wow. Coming to Becky 3. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Mike Santoli, U.S. Equity Futures. Time for a few numbers. Adidas makes 400 million shoes annually. It's the world's second largest athletic shoemaker after, you guessed it, Nike. Another number, 8 million tons of plastic, mostly single-use water bottles, end up in the world's oceans every year. By 2050, there could be more plastic than fish in the sea. So the German athletic company, which has been making shoes and apparel with a three-stripe logo since 1949, looked for a sustainability solution that would fundamentally change its current supply chain. Adidas announced a partnership with Parley, which collects plastic trash from the ocean to recycle that waste into polyester. 
It's been going so well that in 2018, Adidas said it plans to use recycled polyester in all of its shoes and athletic apparel by 2024. Kasper Vorstad is the Danish businessman who has been Adidas' CEO since 2016. And I know we're translating TV to podcast here, so imagine Rorsted sitting in front of a camera at our London headquarters holding the actual prototypes of Adidas running shoes made from plastic. CEO of Adidas. And Casper, it's great to see you. Good morning. You know, we, we have talked in the past about this effort that you're making, and uh, I know it's trickier than it seems. It sounds great to go ahead and do this, but why did you start doing this, and what are some of the struggles you found along the way as you've moved down this path? So in 2015, we had the idea of making a shoe out of ocean plastic, and the first shoe we made was very clumsy, and actually not a very, you know, not a very well-functioning shoe. So first, we needed to get the performance elements right around the shoe. So that was the first one, which just took us a couple of years. And secondly, was really putting a supply chain in place where we can get ocean plastic to the factories. And part of the challenge of collecting ocean plastic is if you start an industry, that is an industry that is prone for child labor. So the more demand we had, we need to make certain that when we collect ocean plastic, that we actually didn't engage in an industry that in, in engaged people or, or kids. So right now we're in a position where, as you correctly said, we have 11 million pairs of shoes being sold out of ocean plastic this year. We have apparel, so it means training suits, jumpers, uh, outdoor jackets, or even swimwear. Last weekend I was mountain biking in the Austrian mountains with a fully outfit made of uh, ocean plastic. Wow. And having the functionality and performance of a normal product. When you, when you first started down this road and realized all of the issues that go along with it, how difficult it is to do this, other problems like child labor that it brings up. Oh, and then, by the way, the fact that the first stuff wasn't all that great. What did you think? Did you ever regret making this move and think, what have I gotten ourselves into? We actually didn't. We're not convinced about the scalability of it first. We knew that it was a very good thing to do. It was great for our brain. But I think only later on did we realize how we could also commercialize it and make it a real part of our business. Using a 3D printed midsole, an upper made out of ocean plastic. And by that, we have some of the most innovative shoes in the sporting goods industry at this stage. So it took us a while to understand the real commercial value out of it. But right now, we're completely convinced about it. And if you see the global movement you know, coming around sustainability, about removing plastic from the ocean, from the environment, we know that we really you know, made a home run with the products we have, and we're expanding as quickly as we can. But of course, we had our doubts in the beginning. Uh, you're, you're not doing this overnight because it's expensive. What, what, what do you charge? What are your margins on this? And, and, and again, you think it's something that's scalable because you figured out a way to make it profitable? Yeah, in the beginning, we're making very little money. And if I, even if I take the shoe today, this is dilutive to margins. But when we look upon, you know, a couple of years ago, we did a million. This year, 11 million. And this is going to be hundreds of millions of products in the next three to four years. So right now, we know that the more we scale, the better the margins are. And it's so imperative to what we're trying to do as a company. But so far, it's been an investment, I would say. Probably a year ago, 18 months ago, we started making money on it. And right now, with the scale we got with 11 million pairs of shoes, this will be one of the contributors to our margin line this year. Casper, how are you seeing things around the, around the globe right now, just in terms of the economy? Nike came out recently and said that it had seen an acceleration, a reacceleration in sales in China and other places. What are you experiencing? So I think we need to separate what's happening for different companies and the economy. There's no doubt the global economy is seeing a slowdown. Europe has been flat or you know, slightly growing for the last couple of years. The trade war between North America and China is not helping the global economy. We've seen a slight slowdown in the U.S. and definitely also a slowdown in China. But uh, we're middle of the, you know, the quiet periods that can only come on the second quarter. We saw very strong growth in the second quarter in China. In terms of manufacturing and just the supply line, 
I think you only make about 25 percent of your shoes in China. You have other places that you make them. What, what does the trade war mean for you? So the trade war has very little impact when it comes to import duties. The much more serious one is if the American consumer has less money to spend, he or she you know, will spend less money on all products, including ours. Um, so that's the more worrying one. Uh, and, of course, if you have a devaluation of the you know, Chinese currency, then that has an impact. So that's what we're seeing. What we're seeing, reversely, we're not seeing a slowdown in the manufacturing of our products, which we are, as I said, doing in China and in Asia, whether it's this one or maybe, if I may, the newest you know, prototype we have, which is a fully recyclable shoe. We now have 250 products out. We're testing it for the next two years, and 21 will launch it in volume. And that means we've developed a shoe in one single material that we can completely retake back, recycle all components of this product, and build a completely new shoe. And a lot of the stuff that we're doing here, the innovation, the innovation is taking place in the West, but manufacturing is going to take place in the East. How, how do you decide where to build plants, especially with some of this uh, new materials that you're using? We basically go where the competence is, and there's no doubt whether it's in China or Vietnam or Indonesia, you know, the shoe wear industry has taken its, you know, sen you know, center out of those countries in the last 30 years. And frankly, the competence to build complicated product like this shoe or this shoe is coming very much out of Asia. The competence to develop it and design it so the 3D print shoe we have here is done with the corporation of a, you know, American-based tech you know, company called 4D Carbon out in California. So a lot of the development is taking on the West, but the manufacturing of the products is still happening in the East. Casper, you have uh, grown market share at a faster rate than your biggest competitor, Nike, has uh, recently. But when you kind of look around the globe and try and figure out what to do next, do you look at this as a zero-sum game? Do you look at this as a game that both players, both major players and others can win? How, how do you handle the competition? How do you look at what your next initiative should be? So if you look upon the overall sporting goods market, it will continue to grow. It's the fight against obesity, having people move more, and, of course, also the movement toward casual wear. So I think it's a mistake we look upon our industry if you only look upon two companies. So we look upon it in a much greater context and looking upon which companies are coming up in Asia and Europe and the U.S. and to figure out which market segments do we want to, you know, occupy. As I said in the beginning, one of the market segments that we are occupying is really the segment around being leader in sustainability and bringing the best, most innovative products out across the entire range, but with a clear differentiator in sustainability. And that's where we don't have one competitor. So of course, we have many competitors in this space. Casper, I want to thank you for your time today. It's really great talking to you. Always. Casper Rorsted is the CEO of Adidas. That's the podcast for today. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. What year is it? 2009. 2019. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, Subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. It's actually really good. I it listen is? to it. It's well edited. They nope. cut out a lot of it. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys.